Hello everyone, welcome to Theory of Architecture. My guest today has written one of the best biographies I have ever read. She is a writer, a historian, and an independent scholar with an interest in biography, material culture, and the connections between them. She has written two prize-winning books, God's Architect, A Life of the Gothic Revival Architect, A.W.N. Pugin, and Stonehenge, A History of One of Britain's Greatest and Least Understood Monuments. Her last book, Unicorn, The Poetry of Angela Carter, was published in 2015. She is currently completing a study of antiquarianism in the Romantic period. She is a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature and the Society of Antiquaries, a member of English Heritage's Blue Plaques panel, a trustee of the Pugin Society, and a quondam fellow of All Souls College, Oxford. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Rosemary Hill. I first came across you through your book, God's Architect, which I have here, which is the definitive biography, as far as I'm concerned, of one Mr. Pugin. And what came to make you write about Pugin? Why did you pick him, of all people, to sort of do an extensive biography about? Well, I think, I mean, I'm a historian, and rather than a biographer per se, and I think Biography is one of the tools in the historian's toolkit. And sometimes when you look at a subject, biography is not the right thing to crack it, as it were. With Pugin, it clearly was, because I realised that um, he'd been written about as a designer, he'd been written about as a Catholic. Whichever way people had written about him, he didn't quite seem to come together. And I knew quite a lot of... Roman Catholics who um, really admired him as a hero of um, Catholic emancipation, but thought that he had very extravagant ideas about architecture, and quite a lot of architects who thought that he was a genius at architecture, pity about all the religious delusions. So you think, well, no, 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 this was a real person. Um, and so I decided that biography was the best way to put Pugin together. Why Pugin? I think, to be absolutely honest, my subject as an historian has always been the connection between philosophical ideas and three-dimensional objects. How is it? I mean, if you have an idea about the human condition, you can write a poem that expresses it, or an essay, or even paint a picture. But why is it that your beliefs about how society ought to be will make you design wallpaper in a certain way? But this happens over and over. You think of the Shakers, you think of William Morris. So I've always been interested in that as a subject. And I have to say that I spent my formative years in um, a school by um, one of Pugin's less, I think, less talented followers, uh, which was a kind of gothic horror um, of such depressingness that I sort of, I always thought, how does a building like this ever, ever happen? And many years later, I worked it out. <laughs> which one of his followers was that? It was oh I've I've suppressed his name. Um, uh, he built Tins he built Tinsfield. Okay. Um, Norton. Uh, yeah. I think it, Perry was one of his, wasn't he? Yes. Because I know the church down the road from where I live was built by Perry, and it's a very sort of pure pure Victorian. Yes. Um, yes. No. I mean that that sort of thing is right, and I think I'm more forgiving now of my. Um, school building because I understand it better but it was um, I also didn't like anything else about the school 
Um, but something about all those towers and crockets and um, cloister-like effects. And I did, I mean, I've always been, without ever thinking of becoming an architect, I wouldn't have the talent, but I've always been very much affected by buildings. Um, my mood is affected, my attitude to everything is affected by them. So I suppose that led me into, as I say, just wondering how on earth anyone could have conceived of something like that. Yeah, it is, it is a particular association with school, isn't it? I mean, the one that immediately comes to mind in most people's popular imagination is Hogwarts, of course, which is a yes. sort of mixture of Scottish baronial and Gothic, and depending on which bit of the country they're filming in, I suppose. Yes. And who was doing the CGI. But it has that sort of association with sort of establishment kind of formality and, and almost oppression of institutions, but not necessarily in a negative way. That and like, how does that style, I guess, link in philosophically to that, those sort of attitudes? Well, I mean, though certainly it's connected with institutions, and it is. And um, my school was um, run by the Church of England Missionary Society, so there's a very direct ecclesiastical Gothic connection. But the Victorians had the Gothic Revival, and the Victorians also had, um, which is one of the many admirable things about them, a great sense of civic responsibility. So they built, you know, they built Gothic town halls and um, Gothic libraries, Gothic university buildings. And I, it, one of the things that irritates me enormously when, it happens to be this government, but all governments do it, fail to, um, maintain any kind of decent standard in prisons and then say, so, well, of course, these Victorian prisons, Brixton, for example, now has twice the density that it had, that it was designed for. I mean, um, it's not the Victorians' fault. And similarly with the Victorian sewer system, if they hadn't built these things so well, they would never have survived through centuries of neglect. So I think it's more a sort of, I suppose it, it isn't just a coincidence of time and ideas, what the Victorians came to believe about Gothic um, was that it represented, obviously it represented the Middle Ages in a sense, but it represented a coherent society, a pre-individualistic society. Um, I mean, the Ruskin and Morris, of course, were quite wrong about the role of the craftsman in the Middle Ages, but that, so historically it was a mistake, but um, that doesn't really matter. What they believed was that it was a time when People worked for the glory of God or they worked for the good of others and they didn't just seek out personal fame. So that does, I think, translate quite directly into these great civic buildings. Um, and fusion very much came on to the sort of the obsession with the sort of medieval and the Gothic from a, I guess, a religious and a philosophical position, didn't he? Like he started. I think, did he start as a, um, not as a Roman Catholic, but as a um, Anglican and then converted? Was that right? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, well, of course, the, um, the problem for the people who were beginning to rediscover the Middle Ages in the last years of the 18th century, Putin was born in 1812. So um, it was really his parents' generation and half a generation before that that started to look again at the Middle Ages, not just as in the way that um, Horace Walpole looked at it, 
um, very intelligently, but not um, particularly, not as a model for the future. Um, but what they were seeing was, as I say, a society that was less individualistic. Um, they, people were losing faith. I mean, the French Revolution was the most appalling shock to the whole of Europe. Um, and so the Enlightenment idea that every day in every way, everyone got better and better and cleverer and cleverer um, went out of the window. And the past became interesting in a different way from the way it had been before. But your problem, and many of the antiquaries found this if you were English or Scottish, um, was that um, if you, want, you wanted to admire the Middle Ages, you wanted to admire its architecture, this was the work of a Catholic, a Roman Catholic state. And if you were English or Scottish, um, you were deeply committed to the Anglican Church as a state institution. Therefore, the Reformation was in sort of 1066 and all that time. The Reformation was a good thing. And the present state of the English Church was a good thing. And so what, how are you going to reconcile these two? And there were many ways in which people tried to fudge it. Um, and Pugin was completely incapable of fudge, or and he didn't like ambivalence. So he thought, easy peasy, just, re, just, just join the Catholic Church, and then the whole thing fits together. And he did it, as he did most things, just, just like that. And then, of course, it was then that the trouble started, <laughs> because it was not so simple. Yeah, he does strike me as quite a uh, sort of spontaneous and almost bipolar character in his sort of interest in one thing and, and his assurance of his correct views in one thing or another and about turns on various architectural and, and religious and philosophical points throughout his life, his short life. Um, and how, how did that sort of affect his, the way he was viewed as an architect, like his general character and his, his sort of tendency well, to be that way? I think that... I mean, he was an autodidact. That wasn't so unusual among architects then because, you know, an architectural training per se didn't really exist. But a lot of people, of course, did work in offices and Pugin didn't. And he was no good from childhood. He did what came easily to him very quickly. And what came easily to him was brilliant art. But anything that required study and persistence, we didn't do. And therefore, his career, to some extent, followed a law of diminishing returns and his Catholicism and his what was perceived as eccentricity. I don't think he was all that eccentric, really. Um, it's all relative. Um, began to work against him. He was no good with institutions of any kind. He couldn't, he didn't get on with the Royal Academy. His friends were always trying, saying, you know, you should be a Royal Academician. I mean, everyone from the Vatican to the Royal Academy, he had a row with because he just did it his way. And I think it was quite easy for people who didn't like him to paint him as someone who kind of burned too bright and burned out because he died at 40. My And I, when I came to the subject, I thought, well, maybe he did. Maybe he just ran through all his ideas and that was it. But it's quite clear that, I mean, architects, you, if, if Pugin had lived as long as Butterfield, then we would regard all his work that survives as early work. 
And it was quite, it's quite clear when you look at the drawing, when he wasn't getting commissions, so very little of this was built. But the drawings, he's finally learning to think like an architect instead of just doing a drawing, trying to build it, which isn't the way to do it. He's starting to think properly in three dimensions and to play with space um, in a really original way that, that points very firmly ahead of Butterfield, who I think was much more influenced by Pugin than perhaps had emerged before, just because Pugin died. Um, I know he was going on thinking, and had he lived even another 10 years, I think we would have really, really innovative and exciting buildings by him. But no, he was never, however long he'd lived, he would never have fitted in. It just wasn't his style. This strikes me as a very a significant contrast to sort of today's architect or egotistical view of the individual architect who's going off and seeking fame and seeking great commissions and this kind of thing. Whereas he was very, well, he didn't seem to care about fame or fortune or anything, no. certainly not early on, and hence perhaps why he was less considered in history as he otherwise would have been had he sort of stood up for himself a bit more. I think that's completely true. Um, he didn't take himself. There's, it was um, the custom then in local newspapers, which there were far more, to note any famous well-known person who was arriving, who'd arrived in town. And I can't remember where it was, but he had arrived. Um, and he wrote home to his wife saying that he'd been included in the list of notable arrival and just wrote afterwards, ha ha. I mean, he wasn't interested in fame. So that is certainly part of it. I think there's always been, I mean, one of the things about being an architect is unlike being a poet or a painter, you can be a poet on your own. If you write a poem, even if you put it in a drawer and nobody ever sees it, it is a poem. Whereas to get to be an architect in any meaningful sense, you have to have a building. And in order to put up a building, you have to get an awful, you know this, your, your listeners know this better than anyone. You need a lot of money, but you also need a lot of people. It's a bit like being a film director or an orchestral conductor. You have to have a lot of people who want to do the thing that you want to do. And one of Pugin's advantages in that was that he got on very well with work. He was more comfortable with them anyway, I think, often than, than grand patrons. And he had great charm and he was a good person to work for. He made sure you, we would get told off a lot. But... Um, Pugin was very good at getting a lot of people to do what he wanted and to want what he wanted. And that was really essential. But what he wasn't, he was very uncomfortable with anything when he was, I mean, another poignant thing about him is that at the end of what turned out to be the end of his life, which coincided with the Great Exhibition, that, that generation who became the design reformers, Owen Redgrave, Henry Cole, all those people, um, got him involved in choosing objects from the Great Exhibition, which of course eventually became the VNA, and he was sort of moving into what we might call a sort of opinion forming. Um, so he was invited to the grand dinner at Lord Holland's to mark the end of the Great Exhibition, and there's a lot of grumbling in his letters home about you didn't really want to go, didn't like that sort of food, and. Um, so, no, he was never going to be someone who was going to have a sort of smooth career, smoothed by charm. Mm. And he wrote um, his famous book, Contrast, among many other books. I remember reading that as an undergrad, I think it's the first year, 
and thinking this is one of the most hilarious sort of rants against one kind of architecture and in favour of another, but written in sort of Victorian language. Um, how does that sort of affect his, how did it affect his career in terms of how people perceived him and how he sort of, how his reputation developed? Well, that really was his, um, what we would now call his breakout moment, because I mean, the the history in contrast, the religion, what you think about the religion will depend on what you yourself believe. The history is incredibly naive, but what is brilliant and original about contrast is, of course, the idea that architects and architecture have moral responsibility. And nobody had said that before. Um, and so, yes, Pugin um, was 20, 24 when it came out. He hadn't built anything. I mean, he says on the, you know, A.W.M. Pugin, architect. He hadn't built anything. Um, and um, he'd done a lot of drawings. He was building, he was in the process of building his own home, um, which is incredibly impractical. But no, it absolutely made his reputation because he, by his, the house he was building for himself was just outside Salisbury. And um, newspapers never learn. They published this series of incredibly angry letters about it. And Pugin says in his diary, that because obviously he, he printed the book privately, and he said, well, you know, up, up until then, I'd hardly sold any copies, and now I've only got one left. Mm -hmm. And of course, he became this great. And but again, there was this two sides to it: that there were people who um, were very um, upset about uh, what he said about architects, because he was very personally rude about a lot of named architects. Um, and uh, needless to say, that got him into a lot of trouble. But then there was the other side, which, of course, was grossly offended by his attitude to the established church, not least the clergy in Salisbury, where he'd worked in the archives, you see, looking up all this history. So um, it was a six-age scandal. And after that, he came to the attention of a group of people who I've called the Romantic Catholics, nobody else has called them anything, and they've been rather written out of history, but they were very important at the time, of men of, mostly men, not all men actually, a few quite important women, of wealth and influence, who were Catholics, and of course until 1829 they hadn't been allowed to build churches and monasteries and things. So you had a lot of wealthy Romantic Catholics looking for an architect, and suddenly, here's this kind of firebrand, um, and that was his career made. Mm. And it was the uh, Earl of Shrewsbury was the main one as far as his career is concerned, wasn't it? Who he, built yes. Alton Towers of now theme park fame. Arguably always a bit of a theme park, I have to say. <laughs> um, and Pugin arrived there just a bit too late because Shrewsbury had commissioned an awful lot of work and quite a lot of slightly awful work. Um, before Pugin got there. But yes, Shrewsbury, and what Shrewsbury wanted to do was um, to establish Alton Towers as in the model of the English country house, as a great sort of international centre for society, for intellectual life, all of this, but, but for Catholics, um, which had not been possible in the same way um, because, you know, the, the, he couldn't take a seat in the House of Lords and so on and so on. So it was a great moment for English Catholicism. Mm, they were really intent on trying to bring about a sort of Catholic revival, weren't they? And trying to sort of bring that back into the prominence and revive the old medieval ways as they saw them, even if they weren't necessarily how they actually were back in 
Well, the thing was that one of the ways in which the fudge of what do you do about admiring the all the art of the Catholic Church while not being a Catholic, there is a very long and deep tradition in England and to some extent in Scotland of, well, I mean, if you go to an Anglican church now, they say at the end of the creed, uh, one, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. The Church of England, the Anglican Foundation, does not believe that it's not um, part of the Catholic Church. Um, it believes that, well, there's this tradition that before Augustine um, at Glastonbury, Joseph of Arimathea, and this is all very kind of misty and Arthurian, but it was um, the idea that there is an English Catholic church that has survived by direct apostolic descent, but is independent of Rome, it goes very, very deep. And you even now, you scratch the surface, you'll find it. And so there were a lot of people, Newman tried to believe this for as long as he possibly could, and in the end he couldn't. And the, the one, the Tractarians who couldn't believe it um, joined the Roman Catholic Church. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church has no interest in this theory at all, as far as they're concerned, that the Church of England is schismatic and that's it. Um, but anyway, so there was all, all that sort of um, area for doubt and debate. But after 1829 and Roman Catholic emancipation, there was quite um, a school of thought among the Oxford movement, but also Gladstone. I mean, this was mainstream stuff, that there could be what they called reunion, that the English church would be taken back into communion with Rome. Um, and, and that would be it. And, and that's why Pugin, in contrast, says, you know, it won't be very long before we're back in Salisbury Cathedral are we Catholics? You know, we're just going to take it all back and we'll all be reunited. We could imagine it made Bishop of Salisbury's hair stand on end. Um, but um, but there was, and I think one of the reasons that Pugin's career took off so quickly was that it coincided with this moment when the whole country, I mean, George Eliot writes very well about this, but the whole country, not just particularly religious people, all got very involved with, um, because of the Tractarians and the Oxford movement, with the history of the English church, the church in England, what had actually happened at the Reformation. Um, people were arguing about theology all over the place. Mm. And he, Pugin sort of, we sort of look at him as being quite a young developer, let's say he was 24 when he wrote Contrasts. But that was partly because he started so early in the theatre, didn't he? Under his, or he was drafting for his father and then started as a theatre hand and came in through the sort of theatre lens into architecture. Like, do, you, do you think that's... Um, I don't know, it, always, it struck me when I was reading your book, going through that section, that that kind of thing could never happen these days because you've got such a formalised route of all this education and then architectural education and sort of young architect is 40 or lower these days. Yeah. So do you think he, it's sort of his immaturity played part, a part in his architectural direction? Yes, I mean, I think to put him in his historical context, there were lots of people, it wasn't just, a lot of people, the world that he grew up in, the class, the social class that he came from, um, was, I mean, his mother was always kind of desperate about um, social status because she was sort of diminished gentry and was always very worried about it. But really where he was growing up was in a kind of, among a lot of artisan, 
That's why he always got on well with workmen. So there were a lot of people who were working when they were 12, 13, 14. And it was not because they were Mozart. It was because they needed, you know, the money was needed. The expectation was that you would be earning your keep. So yes, no, nothing like that could happen now. Um, everything is so much more structured. But there was a big crossover between uh, the theatre, the world of art and architecture, um, and indeed of antiquarianism, because don't forget when Pugin was designing in the theatre, it was just at the very beginning of people having realistic scenery. Um, and um, you had these huge theatres at Covent Garden. So some of the sets were buildings built life-size, um, fully to scale. Um, and I think that he learned a lot about space, about the movement of figures in space um, from the theatre. But no, that sort of career could never happen now. Mm. Yeah, you don't get that kind of crossover these days. No. It's interesting. I always think about his uh, arguments around rude screens, which he seemed to be obsessed with later on in his career. I still haven't read his, his specific book on them. Um, but that I always think when I'm looking at an actual rude screen, that they're part of the theatre that he's thinking about when he's looking at this, thinking of like the audience looking forwards and the sort of one-point perspective almost on the, the facade that he creates. Um, and I guess another part that interested, interested me was you said he had good workmen, and it was, um, was it Hardman, his um, main... Hardman was his great friend. Myers was his main builder. Oh, Myers, that was it, yeah. Um, like the idea that sort of... In those days, you would have a fairly not that detailed drawing, I suppose, sort of ornamental drawing, which you would give to someone like uh, Myers to then interpret it almost in a slightly non-specific way. And it was down to their skill. I mean, correct me if I think you think I'm wrong in any of this, but it was down to their skill to do that well. Whereas these days, you sort of send somebody through a CAD file that's exactly the right size and exactly the way you, you want it. And you get well, I immediately think of Zaha Hadid's drawings. <laughs> I mean, you know, that that was very much the Puget approach. You know, you, you go on a piece of paper and hand it to someone and say, build that. Yeah. Um, no. Well, maybe Zaha is the last of those people, or was the last Maybe. Of I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think that there's a question about what you... I mean, Pugin was, as I say, he hadn't learned how to build but um so no i mean he definitely did give um myers um a sketch and he but he was unusual then if you look at and myers of course was um which suited pugin myers her was a was a cathedral mason he worked i mean and no there were no builders then who actually knew how a medieval building was built there were still a lot of people who thought that medieval buildings were just kind of random heaps of detail that stayed up somehow <laughs> because nobody or very few people at that stage still had actually studied um, medieval architecture. Um, but um, but Pugin was extremely, he was at the extreme. If you look at Charles Barry's drawings, um, when he was designing the um, Edward VI Grammar School at Birmingham, which is where Pugin first worked with Barry, you can see that Barry is thinking in three dimensions. These are the drawings of an architect, whereas Pugin's drawings, really until almost the last couple of years of his life, they're drawings, they're scenery to some extent. Mm. He doesn't, he doesn't, he's not thinking in three dimensions. Is that because of his lack of formal training and not being an apprentice in an architect's office? Partly. And 
Yes, I think I think very largely as because as I say that did start to change in the very last years, but you know when these things were not built. But the thing about um, rude screens is undoubtedly um, it's it's also part of the aesthetic of the picturesque, which is incredibly important, and it's also of course just very. Um, shrewd that if you give the illusion that there is some more space beyond then you give even if it's tiny space just that sense that there is a beyond makes a space feel bigger and one of the great rows in Salisbury Cathedral when Wyatt was in there with Bishop Barrington um, improving it according to Georgian ideas by moving, taking out the tombs, lowering the floors, and Wyatt wanted clear sight lines all the way through. Um, and he took out the screen to the Lady Chapel and everyone just, well, not everyone obviously, but the people who opposed it said apart from the vandalism, you, if you could just see from one end to the other, you lose what um, Burke in his essay calls the artificial infinite. This idea that because it goes on beyond what you can see, maybe it goes on forever. Um, and Pugin, I think, grasped all of that instinctively very early on. And because also the um, scenery department that he worked in, um, the um, because Covent Garden, the stage had become so big after the latest rebuilding that you needed to divide this space. And the Grieve brothers with whom he worked came up with this idea of a building within a building. And in fact, sometimes it was a rude screen. So that you saw this great space divided and you looked at one space as Neufdal um, Price says that thing, dim and discoloured light, um, dif unequally diffused spaces, separate but not divided. I mean, it's, it's just, it's a very profound um, part of human perception. And do you think because he was driven so much by sort of religious perspectives and philosophical perspectives on that, is there something that architects today have lost in that respect because so many architects aren't driven by a sort of a profound uh, philosophical or religious agenda almost? But is, there, is there something that they had then, whether it's Fugin or any of his contemporaries, that's missing from today's architects in, in a sort of theoretical or philosophical I don't know. I mean, I don't know that. Um, I don't know that philosophy makes good architecture. Um, I think that many rather sceptical men have built very good churches. Um, they are mostly men, of course. Um, I don't know that it matters very much. It makes, as I say, it makes Pugin a very interesting subject for biography because he did have these um, two, well, many sides to his character, obviously, but th there was this ideological, philosophical aspect. But I think Latyans was a very great architect and um, he didn't. Mm. Um, and indeed, his wife's philosophy very much came between them. So... No, I don't think there's any correlation at all. And certainly I think there are no architects today as a group um, are no more sceptical, irreligious or thoughtless than they were in the 18th century. Well, architecture today seems less cliquey than it did back then, going from the people like your descriptions and other descriptions of the time of sort of different movements and competing groups. It seems that there's more of a just a general 
cloud of agreement, apart from maybe sort of the traditionalists, as they're often referred to, people like um, Robert Adam. Um, but does it, do we lose something because of that, you think? Is, uh, I think architecture seems to go through phases, as do many other aspects of human activity, where, you know, there's a time when you have to be a modernist or an anti-modernist, and then there's a the time when everyone kind of relaxes a bit, and it is, as you say, now, there's kind of a bit of everything going on. Um, and I think that um, the 20th century was very much a time of binary oppositions of communism or capitalism, modernism or classicism. And we've got to um, a position now, which, and it'll change again. I mean, it always does. It's a kind of tick-tock between the Apollonian and the Dionysian. And at the moment, we're in a phase of thinking, well, you know, um, may a thousand flowers bloom, or we know what we like, but we're much more individualistic again. We're much more in some ways, it's very good. We're much more respectful of individual people's um, sense of themselves and of the world. Um, but perhaps we're a bit short on big ideas, mm. which is kind of what you're saying. Yeah, poss well, possibly. What do you, th what do you think a, a sort of a, an architecture student, say we've, we've just started a new term, say you're, a, you're an undergrad, you've just got into architecture school, uh, probably on Zoom these days, uh, what what can uh, an architecture student of today learn from reading about Pugin um, or Pugin's approach to, to architecture? That they have a social responsibility. That is the most important thing. It's not about you as an architect only, though of course it is about you, but the um, to learn respect for society and Ideally, I'm not sure you'd learn this from Pugin, um, respect for um, earlier architecture. Um, I mean, Pugin was fine with much earlier architecture. He wasn't very keen. Like most architects, anything that had been built by somebody else within his lifetime, he just wanted to knock it down and start again. Um, but no, I think the fact that architects are in some ways much less important than they tend to think they are. Um, of the architect thing that you were talking about, but in many, many ways, so much more important because what you put people in to live their lives has huge impact. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. It's yeah, it's it's a strange one to think about in that in that respect, I guess. Um, in terms of writing a biography of such extent. Presumably that took a huge amount of research um, and time. Yes, <laughs> it did. It's phenomenally well researched, your book. And it's, I've, I mean, this is why I can never be a historian, because the idea of sitting in archives, reading through letters and, and that kind of thing is just unbelievably mind-numbingly dull to me. But I love reading about it, but synthesised in such an excellent way by someone like yourself. Um, so yeah, why... Did you, did, where, what sort of led you up to picking Pugin as someone to delve into that sort of extensively long pro uh, process with? Because presumably to commit to an individual is quite a big decision if you're it is. to write a biography. It is. I mean, I think, well, 
Um, Dr. Johnson's great answer when asked about the dictionary and a mistake in it, ignorance, madam, pure ignorance. <laughs> and I think if I'd really known what was going to happen after I'd started, I might not have started, so just as well I didn't. But um, no, a biography is a bit like an arranged marriage and you cannot write a biography. You don't quite know how it's going to work out, but you do need to have a good feeling about the person. And um, my instincts in that area were right. And I realized, well, first of all, of course, when I said I was going to, thinking about writing a biography of Pugin, um, the architectural historians all said, oh, not another one, it's all been done. So I thought, oh, super, it's all been done. All I need to do is look through the secondary sources and put it in. But of course, nothing had been done, really. Biographically, very, very little had been done. But I read, I mean, nobody really knew who his father was. I mean, they knew who the man was, but where you know, he turned up in London during the French Revolution saying that he was Le Comte de Pugin, which he clearly wasn't. Um, so, you know, um, there was a lot of work to do. But I think that, it, as you say, I mean, you know, it is temperamental. I am very interested in people. I read Ferry, his, Pugin's school friend, Benjamin Ferry, who wrote a biography just about 10 years after Pugin's death. Uh, I read that and I thought, there's a lot here. This is a good story. This is a man who, by the time he was 21, had been shipwrecked, bankrupted and widowed. He went mad and died at 40. You know, this has got to be, a, I mean, I started my life as a journalist. You just think, this is a story. Um, and then, of course, it depends. I find I am fascinated by reading other people's private correspondence. I mean, again, I'm a journalist. So you're reading all these private letters and... Um, I become completely absorbed in this world. And um, and then also there's an element of kind of police work about it. I'm always being, I read something, um, as I say, well, you know, like um, Pugin's father's story about being left for dead at the, at the Bastille. You think, no, that's not true. You could, You begin to get a nose for what is, if a story is both very familiar in a way, because heroes are always getting left for dead and escaping, but then on the other hand, it's a bit implausible because if he was at the Bastille and he wanted to go to the French coast, why did he swim the Seine? He was going the wrong way. This is clearly made up. So you park that and you go back to the facts that you do have and you follow those and you find yourself in Paris in the archives. And then you find yourself very close to the revolution. And if you are an historian and you think, I'm holding the paper that this person held, then it's very, very exciting. Mm, yeah, I, I always think that, I feel sorry for the, the historians of a hundred years time who'll be sifting through sort of messages of uh, emojis and gifts <laughs> like short little snippets of just text messages constantly. Uh, to be a historian at that time would be a lot, probably a lot harder than. Uh, It'll be very different. But do you see the thing is that sometimes it depends what kind of history you're doing, obviously. But um, for example, a letter sent to Mrs. Pugin by the parent of one of Mr. Pugin's pupils which is about nothing very much. And when you turn it over, she's written a shopping list on the back. It's so interesting. What was she buying? What were they eating? You know, if you're, if you're really curious about people, that's really much, much more, 
well, it's not more important than the big things, but big things get recorded anyway, everywhere. You can look in the newspaper, you know when the Bastille was stormed. But if you want to know um, what the Pugins did about their laundry, what was the texture of life? That's what you're always trying to get to. Um, and those tiny details, nobody... Um, you know, when people say to you as a biographer, oh, you don't need to look at those, it's all just family stuff, it won't be of any interest, <laughs> uh, then that's that's like a kind of red rag to a bull, really. Or... Yeah. Well, I suppose Pugin was particularly interesting because he wasn't just interesting as an architect, but he also had an interesting life as well. Yes. And your book does almost read like a sort of a drama, like a saga, where you're sort of monitoring what he's doing in his architectural world, in his sort of profession, but also his crazy private life is going one way and another and it's had deaths of multiple wives and people moving in and out and illnesses and all this kind of thing and it's it does i mean you always make a netflix series out of it it's it's very gripping when you're reading it um well it was i mean the fact is that people well pugin particularly because he didn't have a separate office he worked in the house but of course and i think it is one of the things about what has been academic history which has been, until relatively recently, very um, masculine. John Burrow, who wrote The Wonderful History of Histories, says, you know, there was a distinct smell of pipe smoke about historical studies. So that people, and, and that very, um, that tendency to just look at, you know, someone's political career or what, um, or, or their architectural work or something, and not take into account the fact that people are doing these things in an ordinary real well or an extraordinary they're doing it in a real life and their illnesses their moods their, whether they've got any money or not this is all going to make a difference to what actually happens and i've just been in the book i've just finished um quoting walter scott um writing to a friend and i've left in the bit where he says i'm i've been trying to get on with this but we've got an, a new baby and it's just screaming the whole time and i left that in and I suspect many men would have cut it out because actually that made a difference to how Scott was feeling. It made a difference to when he finished that particular piece of work and he thought it was worth mentioning. So I think that in order to understand um, a life, you have to put in, um, the, as it were, the behind the scenes, the below stairs um, stuff. But many architects don't have in blunt bluntly don't have interesting lives and that's why as I say you have all these different tools in your toolkit as an historian and for another architect biography might be completely irrelevant and what you really want is um, a monograph by somebody who is an expert on architecture mm. too cool I mean, but Pugin would never have been so famous if it, if it was only about the buildings because that's the other thing you can see I mean, I'm not a professional architecture historian, but you look at those buildings and you think, well, a lot of them are not very good, frankly. So this isn't, it's not like Wren or Palladio or Latians. It doesn't, this, there was something about this man that was not just the buildings. Mm. What do you think, if, if you saw Parliament today and what was happening with the renovations and that kind of thing and everything that was around it as well, what do you think you would think of? I think in this instance, it's important not to over-identify with your subject, but I think he and I would think the same because I'm on a subcommittee which is part of the Restoration and Renewal programme and I can't help feeling that it's all very like the 1830s all over again. The same arguments at the bottom of it all, which is perfectly on the public record, is the 
reluctant stroke refusal of Parliament to move out. Barry had exactly the same problem. The warnings, you know, you really can't go on like this. Something absolutely must be done. Then somebody writes in the newspaper that it'd be better to just close the whole thing down and move it somewhere else. All of this we went through in the 1830s. And I do hope it doesn't end the same way with it, all the warnings being ignored and then the whole thing burns to the ground. It's possible. But I hope it doesn't happen like that. And I think he would think what he thought at the time that it was... Um, you know, he was best known, that he would be annoyed that he's best known for that now, because it was really to him one of, not only one of the least interesting jobs, because um, it wasn't his job, but it was, it became a terrible treadmill to him, having to turn out all this stuff as he was getting iller and iller. And because he worked, he set his rates very low, because when he was just working for himself, he worked very fast. But of course, he was working for Barry. He kept sending stuff back and there was all the revisions. So it became very uneconomical. And also because he was no good with meetings and committees and formalities and so on. And um, Barry cut his salary in half. I mean, and Pugin was so good natured. He just kind of accepted it and worked on and on and on and on, on. So I think he would just probably say, same old mess. Um, I'm sure he'd enjoy all the new technologies we've got to uh, speed up his manufacturing of his insanely complex stonework, though. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm yet to visit Cheadle. I'm very excited about going and, and seeing it in its full glory, hopefully. Um, which, which I got the impression from your book that that was his sort of magnum opus in terms of his buildings. Although he, later on, even that, he was saying he was changing his view on it, which led to, um, I guess, Ramsgate. Uh, the church there being very different. Yes. Um, but do you think that's the sort of the opulence of the interior of the commons and of Cheadle as well? Do you think we'll ever get back to that or will there ever be a, a movement that attempts to bring that sort of thing back? Well, it's never quite the same, but I think people are... The idea of colour is coming back into architecture. Um, people like colour, people like pattern, um, people like variety. Um, and so that, I think, will come back. And what one generation regards as, um, you know, a kind of terrible riot of clashing patterns. I mean, people going into the Grange, as it's Putin's house down in Ramsgate, as it's been restored by the Landmark Trust, I mean, it must have always been a bit like that. And you do think, good heavens, this is very overwhelming to us. But so, I mean, you know, we won't go back to that because we never go back. But I think a more highly decorated, um, more colourful, um, less machine-turned aesthetic is bound to come back. Mm. So it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because of the, the nature of how it's produced has changed, I guess. This is where um, Ruskin and Morris come in, that they were trying to almost revive that kind of the handcrafted side of it, and the, but, but in a machine age and the, at the dawn of the machine age and just got completely overrun by a, a, different, a different philosophy, a different movement almost. Well, I don't know that they do. I mean, craft has never gone away and people, people like it. I mean, if you, when you're in Salisbury or Canterbury, or if you go to the Mason's workshop, full of people watching people chipping bits of stone. Look at the, the unexpected success of the television programme, The Repair Shop. 
I mean, everyone loves it. They love watching humans making things by hand and repairing things. So what the role of that in architecture, of course, was greatly diminished, almost eliminated. But it, the role of that, of, of craftsmanship in the human psyche, has never gone and never will. And as it comes back, um, you know, stained glass, for example. I mean, there are all sorts of um, craft that still, I sit on the English Heritage um, Blue Plaques panel, and the blue plaques are made by hand, by a potter. Um, and people who come on possibly to look up somebody who's got a blue plaque are riveted by watching that. And it's very difficult to reproduce that. That is part of sort of the, the romanticism or the romantic um, harking back to a, an older, more idolised age, almost what Fusion was doing back to the medieval age. I think something like Etsy.com, which is like a craft site where they do exactly that same yeah. thing. But the same people who are buying something from Etsy on one day will also buy a mass manufactured thing off Amazon the next day yeah. and not think anything of it. So it's, it's we're almost at this weird hybridization of, of sort of competing values. I don't, well, I think it's a mistake. I think Ruskin and Morris made a mistake by loading it with value because as Pugin is supposed, and I'm sure it's true, but it was only reported by the family, supposed to have said when somebody um, told him that Ruskin had attacked him in print and Pugin looked up from what he was drawing and said, well, let the fellow try and build something, okay. which is, you know, that's exactly it. Um, so I think if you load it up with too much ideology, then you find yourself getting into a muddle. Whereas Pugin was very, just very pragmatic, and you should be pragmatic. If something is better done by a machine, get the machine one. If there's nothing good about it just because it's wobbly and doesn't work very well, that's not, which is the whole kind of nightmare side of craft. Um, but if you want a bowl that's been hand thrown, and it will be more beautiful, and it will have the mark of the maker's hand, and you like that, have that. There's no, I, there's no necessary conflict between these things. Mm. I guess it's that role of imperfection, really, isn't it? And the, and the, the interpretation of, of the mason, or the, like you say, the mark of the mason. Because yeah. if you took two pieces of stone, one that was hand-chipped by a mason on site, and the other that was sort of spat out by a CNC router in five minutes, but were exactly the same, like, even though they were exactly the same, you would think of them differently. Like, if you knew. If you knew, yeah. And that, well, that's part of the point, isn't it? Is these yeah. days people are trying to fake craft by using mass manufacturer, um, or sometimes the other way around, they're trying to craft things to be hyper-accurate. Hyper well, less often, of course, because craft... I mean, for many years, um, I worked as a contributing editor on the Crafts Council's journal, and um, now I was, and I also used to write about craft for the Guardian. Um, yes, always going to see people who, were frankly, very incompetent, um, and because whatever they'd made um, didn't work or fell over, um, and they said, "Well, you know, it's just that's the whole point." You see, and of course, it wasn't the whole point. Um, it was just that they were incompetent, and um, I witnessed a very angry exchange between um, a cider farmer and a craftsperson who was going to charge something like, I don't know, 85 pounds per one jar to hold cider. And this guy said, you know, I've got, an, I've got a proper working pottery down the road and they just turn them out all the time. So I think there was a lot of, particularly after 1940 and Leach's A Potter's Book, which kind of took on the Ruskin-Morris moral argument about craft. 
No, I mean, Pugin was very happy to use Jordan's patent carving machine to get the panelling roughed out in the Palace of Westminster. And then he used individual workmen to finish it by hand because you needed to. Mm. So I, I think just choosing the right tool for the job is the important thing, the right method for the job. Well, I always think these days the craft has sort of moved upstream closer to the architect now because it's rather than being the workman on site who's actually doing the crafting, like the crafting happens at the, the 3D modelling stage where you're sat there on a computer mm. sort of creating something in three dimensions, which is a different form of craft, really. Yes. And then it just goes often can go straight to a CNC machine or a 3D printer or whatever it is. Um, and you're, you're bringing that craft back towards the architect. And maybe you lose something in that. Maybe you sort of lose a... Um, the value in that extra iterative stage of another individual being involved, or maybe you don't. Maybe you get. Maybe I mean I think it's very. It's another of those great sort of um, polar um, binary contradictions of the twentieth century that's simply gone away. Is it craft or is it art? Is it craft or is it architecture? We don't need that. That no longer seems to be a very urgent question. There are other urgent questions which you're, you're gesturing towards. But I do think, I mean, if you think of um, Holy Trinity Sloan Street in London, which is the great arts and crafts church, it's, and every craftsman is in there and they're all soloists. And it's a wonderful building and I'm very glad that they weren't allowed to knock it down. But it's also a textbook case of why you need an architect who is in charge so that there is a kind of bigger picture and everything fits within it, um, rather than, as I say, than having an orchestra where everyone's playing their own tune. And the bits are lovely, but the whole is incoherent. Mm. Which I guess was the role that Barry played on the House of Parliament, with yeah. Eugen being crafting side and Barry being the overarching committee member and coordinator and conductor, as you, as you alluded to. Well, that's why he made Pugin redo things. I mean, if Pugin had had that building to himself, one end would have been completely different from the other. Uh, it would have been, yes, it would have been absolute chaos. Um, yeah. Undoubtedly. Well, speaking of craft, yes. despite segue, uh, <laughs> the oldest crafted thing that we have in this country, as far as I'm aware, is Stonehenge. Yes. And which I visited recently, and you've written a book on, which I'm sorry to say I haven't read yet. Um, but first of all, why Stonehenge? And what did you say about it that uh, everyone else? Failed to say, and there are doubtless dozens or hundreds of books on it. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books. Um, well, it's same question, really. Um, how do ideas get into objects? And also, in my case, one thing that I didn't realise until I had written the book and somebody else pointed it out to me, that I was the first woman ever to write a whole book about Stonehenge. Mm -hmm. That's interesting in itself. Um, I was sick of the um, idea that it belonged to archaeology. Um, in this case, of course, there was, you might say with um, the same, it was true of Pugin in a way, that, that, that the overbalancing of ideas to actual information was very disproportionate. And because I was interested in writing about antiquarianism and so on and so on and so on. So for one reason or another, it seemed to me that Stonehenge, which has really in so far in throughout recorded history has really just been a giant mirror um, for ideas and for the passing of time and i was quite happy to give the archaeologists a chapter 
but they were only to have one chapter. And the uh, and the architects get a chapter. There was Don Summerson wrote in a letter to Gavin Stamp. Um, I passed Stonehenge last night, the soul of architecture laid bare, which is a wonderful phrase, and it's true. And the and of all the things, I mean, people talk about Stonehenge being a temple or it's a ritual site or it's a tomb or it's what there's a, the only thing that you can actually say in terms of intention about Stonehenge unequivocally is that it is architecture, in that it is building aesthetically considered. It has an inside, it has an outside, it has different surface finishes. So you, the architects really, if you're going to say it belongs only to one group, one um kind of way of thinking. The architects have a much better claim than the archaeologists. But anyway, the idea simply really was the book, um, if you do read it, you'll discover um, the structure of it is appropriately circular. So we start and end with archaeology. But Stonehenge, um, because it is so, well, monumental and inescapable, and at the same time, mysterious, and that's what people love. I mean, they people love a mystery. And they love a monument, and it goes on and on and on, being both. Mm. It struck me when I was hearing about what happened to it over mm. the last few decades, the sort of the carelessness that previous generations had paid to it, like paint the radio company painting their logo on the side of it, and it's it, it's almost like we've been through a phase from when the Victorians were sort of idolising the picturesque ruins, places like Tintin, through the sort of twentieth century, where there's this. Um, callous disregard for any kind of history and large aspects. And we're now back into an era where we're trying to preserve things exactly as they are and are very scared to touch them, but only very, very carefully. Um, and so there's sort of a circularity to that, which is quite interesting to me, I think. Yes, I mean, <clears throat> I think it's, I'm not sure that Stonehenge, people have ever been very careful about Stonehenge. And now, of course, there's this enormous project to um, build a, the tunnel. Um, one of the things I like very much about writing about Stonehenge is the Druids, who of course drive the archaeologists mad. Um, but they, they're great fun. They're great fun. And, um, and they, they, you know, it is one of, again, one of those interesting phenomena of history that if enough people believe something for long enough, it tends to become true. And although the Iron Age Druids had absolutely nothing to do with and couldn't have anything to do with the building of Stonehenge. Because for hundreds of years, people did believe there were Druids at Stonehenge. If you go now, there are Druids at Stonehenge. See? Um, so, I, but I think that um, attitude, it is so often focused um, protests. It has been the focus of changes in um, the law. It, it somehow, it's kind of almost like it's the British id. It, it somehow becomes a magnet for the, all these changing things. But I'm not sure that, um, I don't think we've ever been particularly careful about it. It's just that, I mean, all the stones were moved around in the 1960s um, and set in concrete. Um, and now there is this plan to build a tunnel which will undoubtedly destroy an enormous amount of um, irreplaceable archaeological information. And um, I'm not very worried about it because I don't think it'll happen. It's too complicated and it's too expensive. Mm -hmm. And now they found the Durrington anomalies, which are a wonderful, wonderful description. 
typical archaeologists, um, which are this series of enormous round things, um, marks on the landscape, which give, in fairness to the archaeologists, another very good reason for not just digging it. Why? Just, just widen the road a little bit. Can do that. That's all very surface. Well, and do you think even if they put the tunnel ends a long way away from Stonehenge, it would still be disruptive to the? Well, yeah, because if you, it doesn't matter. I mean, the longer the tunnel is, the more vent. Unless you, the poor old no, motorists are all going to die. Of, um, you're, you're going to have to dig. Well, King Arthur, I, I'm very fond of, um, uh, who was a motorbike messenger called David Rothwell, who changed his name to by deed poll to Arthur Pendragon. And when the big disruptions happened in the 1980s, he was constantly being summoned. And of course, he always has to be addressed as King Arthur because that is now his name. And but it's, as I say, it's been the focus for this particularly English kind of rather satirical but deeply felt protest. Um, somebody gave King Arthur um, the sword from um, the Borman film Excalibur and on one occasion, he was arrested um, for having an offensive weapon, which was Excalibur. I mean... He sounds like a great person to talk to. He would be a great person to talk to if you can get him to talk. I've never really talked to him. I've met him at Stonehenge. I've been there when he's been doing hand fastings and things at the winter solstice. Um, but I mean, you know, who's to say that his experience and his relationship with Stonehenge is, is any less valid than the archaeologists, frankly. Mm. I do like the idea that the architects have a stronger claim to Stonehenge than the archaeologists. They have the only <laughs> indisputable claim. I'll remind them of that next time they're trying to claim it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's always, it's always struck me that the sort of the solidity of ancient monuments, and I guess there's a sort of re self-reinforcing thing here that anything that wasn't solid would have disappeared. But the solidity of things like um, like the, the mounds around it, the burial mounds, Stonehenge itself, um, things in other countries like the, the pyramids, the sort of the architecture of that solidity lends them a, a value that goes beyond just the sort of temporary nature of most buildings today. Um, and, I, and I always think, should we be building all buildings to last 500, 1,000 or even 10,000 years? Or is it okay to renew tower blocks every 30 years or every the houses every 60 years or 100 years or, or like what's the sort of architectural justification for one side or the other? Well, usually it goes with the money, doesn't it? Mm. Um, it's more expensive to build solid buildings. It's much more. So, I mean, one of the things that you can learn about any society when you look, I mean, say in Sri Lanka, look at the temples there. Um, most people, building in stone was very expensive, so whatever people built in stone was where their, as a society, their biggest energy was focused, bigger the money, the labor, everything else. Um, I think it would be an appalling idea if everything was built to last for 500 years. I mean, we would all be stuck with everything um, as it was, but I think that, but equally the idea that you build something that's just going to, with the idea that it'll be taken down in 30 years, what we'd all need to think about, both I think morally, socially, because of climate change, because of everything else, is about the reuse of buildings, the adaptability of buildings um, over time. and. Nothing should be built to be taken down, but as I say, to be um, 
to be as adaptable as possible. I mean, round here where I am, there's um, the um, Camberwell swimming baths, which were built in 1899 as kind of steam baths and laundry and everything. They're still going. They've been adapted. There's a gym, there's a swimming pool, etc. Um, the Pe new Peckham swimming pool, which is about 15 years old, had to immediately close because there's a giant crack in it. And it's completely unadaptable. And in time, it will just be taken down because there'll be nothing else you can do with it. Um, so as I say, good good buildings which um, serve their purpose but are not over-designed so that they become inflexible. Um, and then the constant appreciation of the value of stored energy in buildings. Do not, do not lightly dismantle stuff. Mm. Well, I, I always think about um, this, one of the similarities between um, structural stone buildings, like most Gothic and Gothic Revival buildings, I know some in the steel frame as well, um, and something like 60s brutalism, is there's more of a contrast between the solid elements and the sort of the temporary replaceable elements. So it's, it's more easy if you're a retrofitting architect coming along 30 years later, 50 years later, even 100 years later, to say, okay, those are the valuable solid bits, um, but those are the rotting temporary bits that need replacing. We're gonna e we can easily draw a distinction between one and the other, and we can replace the... the the lightweight uh, rotting bits, usually windows, doors, interior stuff, um, with renewed, whether restored to the same way or completely new, fresh stuff, but leave the value of the old thing as well. Like you see this in sort of National Trust properties and places, all, and churches, like which. And indeed, doors. the Palace of Westminster right now as we speak. Yeah, Palace of Westminster, oh, if you see like a glass door or something in a stone surround or something like that, yeah. and that contrast is emphasized. Um, and maybe that's the way to sort of to get both ends of the stick effectively to sort of have your cake and eat it in that respect that you can have that that continuity of a building while still being able to design it to be retrofitted in the future in a more sustainable way. Well, you can't really do that because you don't know. I mean, the uh, Middle and Grand Hotels and Pancras Station. Um, at one point, one of the reasons that it came close to demolition was because it was so badly adapted for modern ducting and piping and things but when but then computers were invented and the ducts for which had been for things like um vacuum messages and things were perfect so you know you don't know what's going to happen i think that as you say solid building and then thoughtful retrofitting what we can see out of the window there is lacanor house which caught fire um, it was the predecessor to the, um, and I'm trying to remember what year it was. It was 2010, 2011. I sat at this desk and watched that fire break out. And um, there was a report afterwards, which was largely ignored, which is why Grenfell happened. Um, but that building had been, that the So Gardens estate, which was a 50s estate, one of the first kind of Corbusian um, states um, in in um, South London um, had that had been very badly adapted, and of course, when the fire happened, and everyone overreacted very fast. Um, five people died in that building. Um, everyone said, "Oh, it's because there are only two um, fire escapes." But actually, looking at the plans, which I did, and what had been done to it, it had been made unsafe by retrofitting. It wasn't the fault of the building. 
people wanted to blame the building because it's the kind of architecture that people are very against now. So, I mean, I think all you can say is there are individual cases, but the original design of that building was not at all bad. Yeah, it's interesting to see what uh, changes come about from the, the Grenfell report. Well, it come, I, as I start, said at the beginning of this bit of the conversation, money. It's as simple as that, money. And if you were looking at our society from outer space, you would see in buildings like that, um, these are buildings that are not valued by society. They have not been cared for, and probably the people inside them haven't been much cared for either. Mm. I, I found it interesting going through all of the part three stuff a couple of years ago, all of the sort of contractual um, loopholes and, and incentives that sort of steer different people one way or another. Uh, which is why I'm a big, a big fan of things like um, integrated product insurance and um, architect-led design and build and, and things like that where, where you change minor tweaks to the incentives, just flip the whole system around and therefore you get a, a trend going one way rather than the other, which leads to safer buildings and, and yeah. sort of better outcomes. Um, okay, or well, should we move on to clothes? Yes. Yes. Um, I thought, I've just listened, as I said earlier, I've just listened to your uh, podcast episode, uh, The State of Dress, which was, is it the uh, London Review of Books podcast? London Review of Books podcast, yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure there's loads more uh, excellent episodes of that podcast that I can dive into. Um, but you, you seem to be quite interested in sort of the cultural and social side of clothes and their meaning as it changes over time. Like how, let's start from the beginning and go backwards. What, how do you see contemporary fashion from a sort of socio-cultural perspective? Gosh, well, I think fashion is its own world. Um, and it doesn't really have very much to do, or it's a, it's a subset, if you like, of what interests me, which is clothes. Um, and it's, I mean, you know, anyone who has the most superficial acquaintance with fashion magazines or the fashion pages of a newspaper knows that, you know, you flick through that, you look out of the window or you walk down the street, you don't see anyone who looks like that. Hardly anyone um, ever. And indeed, it is the case that something which you might wear um, in Paris during fashion week, that everyone will think you're, you know, you're really it. But if you went around Sainsbury's dressed like that, people would just think it was sad because, you know, they wouldn't know that, that, that this peculiar outfit was the thing. I mean, fashion clothes are very contextual, I suppose, is what I'm beginning to say, that um, we all know that we are sending and receiving signals via our clothes. Um, and that sometimes coincides with fashion. Um, and fashion overall tends to reflect something about society. But, I mean, well, the, 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 um, if you look at photographs of people in the 1920s, women, women, of course, are much more interesting to me and generally, I think, if you're interested in clothes, because I think men on the whole, unless it's their business, tend, they say a lot about themselves with their clothes, but really what they mainly say is, I don't want to think about clothes. Um, I'm just going to wear this stuff because it's okay. Um, whereas women are always very aware. I mean, if you just look at newsreaders, um, and, uh, and women are always, their clothes are always commented on, and quite rightly, because the clothes are actually saying something um, that a man's 
dark suit. We, 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 women don't have the equivalent of the dark suit or, or the um, dinner jacket. Um, so you're always you're saying something whether you want to or not. Um, but if as, to go back to the 1920s, you look at all those wonderful fashion plates. Um, and then you look at photographs of what people actually looked like when they wore those drop-waisted dresses um, and the, the cloche hats. And the, a hairband down here will take 100 points off anyone's IQ. Mm -hmm. If you look at the Queen Mother's wedding photographs, which I, I have, oddly enough, um, she looks frightful because she's this dumpy little thing with a thing down here. Um, but you can just see behind her what the fashion plate version would have been of that. And it's always, I mean, as a woman, you look through online catalogues of clothes and you think, well, that does look nice. And then if they're honest enough, it will say at the side, you know, model is six foot four and wears a size zero. And you think, yeah, right. Um, so it's not going to look like that on me, is it? Uh, but that's, so that's fashion, I think, is one thing. And clothes, clothes are quite another. I mean, they do come... Well, they come literally between the naked body and the world. So they are... Well, so there's the buildings in that respect. Yes. And they, they have that sort of artistic expression and expression of personal identity to the world, as well as the functional side of protecting you from the elements and giving you privacy to some degree. But one turns over on a monthly basis in terms of its fashions, uh, and the other turns over on a decades or even centuries basis. Um, I don't know, maybe you move in more fashionable circles than I do. I don't think that fashion, I don't think that clothes change that fast. Um, I think they change, in fact, sometimes one of the um, interesting and slightly startling, when, until you're used to it, things about architecture and clothes, because I completely take your point. I mean, you're, you're dealing in something which is an art, but also has to function, which um, is the expression of somebody's idea about the world, but has to be accepted by other people and bought, otherwise it won't happen. But when you look at those photographs of modernist houses, when the photographer has, by some terrible omission, allowed an actual person into the frame. Not forbid. Not forbid. Um, but they're, they're all wearing all these very old-fashioned clothes, and they look Victorian, practically, in this amazing clean box. And that is a case where um, clothes lagged a long way behind the cutting edge of architecture. And it, obviously, these were people who were at the cutting edge of architecture in the buildings they commissioned, but they were still wearing... Um, well, as I say, quite kind of um, almost Edwardian-looking clothes. Mm. I think your, your point earlier about women's fashion and men not having that flexibility, I think as a being an architect, you're obviously you're a, a version of a designer. I think every designer has some interest in every other aspect of design to at least some degree. I've always found, been very jealous of women's ability to have that sort of flexibility and range in what's available to you. And I've, I'm not dressed particularly fashionably now, but I often wear incredibly loud, uh, colourful shirts under a plain suit or a, mm. with like a sort of normal coloured tie or something in a pocket square, which makes me stand out massively against the, the blue suited, white shirted brigade, which is every other man in pretty much every other industry these days. Yeah. Um, or most architects who wear black shirts, black polo necks, um, black rimmed glasses, because um, they're trying to be quite maybe. Um, and it's we're all it, Steve Jobs. Yeah, but it's it's people are I often find are 
surprised at a man being expressive in terms of fashion, um, especially a straight man. Like gay men do it. Yeah, no, gay men get a bit of a free pass on that. Yeah. But no straight men. Um, yes, and, and it's such a relief when they do. It's so interesting. And you think, well, maybe if enough of them do it, then, you know, it'll, it'll move on. Because after all, historically, men, men's clothes were very interesting. Um, and they were interesting to women as well. Um, and all those... Um, historical novels about the Regency where women are always ogling men's calves, a well-turned calf in a silk stocking. I mean, that's very attractive. There's nothing. I'm not sure um, people who are fans of skinny jeans would say that these days. I've heard very, very negative reviews generally on men wearing skinny jeans. And well, skinny, yeah, but, but skinny jeans don't show off your calves in the same Maybe way as like, the uh, no, knee, breeches, knee breeches and stockings oh, and, okay. a high, and a heeled shoe. Very attractive, if you've got the legs for it. Um, well, I saw I saw the other day an advert for um, prints of hoodies, hoodies with prints on them of almost like regal attire. So it's the kind of thing that Prince Charles wears to an event, like a bright red coat with breeches and medals and stuff. Yeah. But printed on a hoodie. <laughs> That's quite witty. Yeah, and it's I've noticed this trend for for very elaborate prints on very plain clothes. Which I, I'm guessing is kind of a uh, almost a revival of, I guess, ornament in the fashion sense to some extent, but it's always done in that sort of single plane sense of this is a single printed garment, and maybe it's a cost thing. Well, um, it's also an irony thing. It's a way of being flamboyant without being flamboyant. Saying, "I know I'm doing this. I'm doing it in inverted commas. I'm still only wearing a hoodie." Um. Which I've, I mean, I'm all for irony in clothes, but again, irony depends always on context. And you could wear that kind of hoodie in the wrong place and people would just think you're a bit sad um, or down on your luck. Um, you need, clothes require an audience. They require a recognition. And the thing that looks perfectly fine in one place will mark you out as, as you know, an eccentric um, or possibly a danger. I mean, the whole hoodie thing about, um, you know, if you're, especially around here, if you're a young black guy and you're wearing a hoodie, you're going to get stopped a lot in a way that if you put on a suit and tie, you won't. Yeah. Well, I guess that's the role, part of the role that clothes have always had, isn't it? Yes. I'm sure the equivalent existed in the Middle Ages where someone was wearing a, I don't know, a Hessian sack or something. No, 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 you, no, you watch far too much Blackadder. People didn't really, didn't really walk around covered in mud wearing Hessian sacks in the Middle Ages. Well, no, because there wasn't fashion then. I mean, that's the other, that's the whole point, isn't it? That you only get, fashion is a product of urbanity. You only get it in the city. And also, of course, you had sumptuary laws. So once you get, you get fashion starting at court and then within the city, and then in order to preserve a social hierarchy, you have sumptuary laws about who can wear what. Um, and you're not allowed, if you're, as it were, Baldrick, to go um, strutting around in silk. Um, but then, obviously, that all um, control was lost. But there are, I mean, Defoe in Mole Flanders, um, Mole Flanders, who is um, a career criminal, and she does what um, shoplifters, she, shoplifting was part of her repertoire, and she does 
and pickpocketing. And she does what people do today. She said it's incredibly important to be well-dressed. She always got, got up to the nines, expensively dressed, very well done hair. So she didn't look suspicious. And yes, there would have been somebody wearing the sort of clothes that she normally wore going into an expensive shop, probably would have been followed around by the equivalent of the store detective. Um, so yes, but I think that, um, as I say, it's it's what you wear in, it's every, the clothes are all context. Mm. And, and they play a huge part in your identity as well. Yeah. You could sort of, as almost a two-way feedback loop between what you're wearing and how you behave. Yes. Uh, and how people treat you. And that people sort of put on different identities, don't they? That, that, that the yes. guy who's wearing a hoodie one day might be wearing a suit the next day for a different context, like you say, and but then also acts differently because of that. Well, the um, old cliche about, you know, dress for the job that you want, not the job that you've got. Um, there is something in that. And if you... Um, also, I think that if you dress in such a way as to suggest that you have a certain amount of self-respect, you will get self, you will get respect from other people. Whereas if you just look totally thrown together, um, this was actually in one of Putin's problems. Um, he was incredibly scruffy looking, and it's was strange for a man who created such sort of detailed, formal, ornate designs. It is, and well, he also did design his own outfit, this smock, which he is depicted in, and indeed on the Albert Memorial he's wearing it. And that, again, the artisan thing, if you think later on Eric Gill wore a smock like that. Um, but no, most of the time he didn't, and recall, recalled um, being asked to leave a first-class compartment on the train because nobody could believe he'd had a first-class ticket, which is exactly what you're saying. And of course, he did have a first-class ticket. Um, as it happened. But um, so yes, clothes, um, I think your comparison with architecture is a very good one because it is, neither can ever be neutral. You can never not be saying something, but I think men have more of an option to say nothing than women do. Mm. Well, for men, it goes down much more to the detail, doesn't it? Because you have that uniform, like if you're yeah. taking the suit as the classic formal uniform, which I don't think necessarily applies as much these days, depending on the context. Um, it then comes down to all the details, which is why you yeah. men are spending so much on exactly the right cut of suit or the right type of tie or a tie clip or a sleeve length or a button or whatever it is. Glasses. So, glasses, yeah. Was it the, the narcissism of small differences? Yes. Whereas women can have like a brightly coloured jacket or coat or yeah. a completely different form of clothes. Whereas with men, the form stays the same, but the, the details and the colour change, which is, I guess, convenient for us in the sense that you only have to have a couple of suits and you can change them as you need to. Very inconvenient for women trying to buy presents for men because it always <laughs> comes down to the socks, the handkerchiefs. There isn't that much you can do with them, really. Um, but do you think women's uniform, women are approaching a uniform as there are more women in higher roles and more formal roles in the workplace? Or is it still, is that ever going to equalise to a point where women can just wear sort of a trouser suit as in the same way that men wear suits? I don't think it was. What I would hope is that men, interesting clothes for men come back. But no, I mean, everyone thought 
that, well, not everyone, but it was generally thought in the 1980s that women had cracked this. And then yesterday on the Today programme, huge news, shoulder pads are back. And of course, when you look at those um, power suits that women wore in the 80s, um, that, that that seemed at the time like kind of just inevitable things, they were, they were as you say, without connotation, they were just workwear. And you look at them now, and Joan Collins, and you just think, my God, you know, that is so 80s. Mm. Um, and all Cecil Beaton, who writes very interestingly about clothes and fashion, says, you know, it takes exactly 25 years for the distance to be right to lend enchantment. When Thackeray wrote in the 1840s, when he wrote Vanity Fair, he said that the illustrations could not, which is set in the Regency, the illustrations couldn't show the clothes of the Regency because it would render the whole novel ridiculous. Yeah. Well, I guess we are now far enough from the 80s that to wear stuff from the 80s is ironically cool. Well, there's a cast iron rule, which is if you wore it the first time, don't wear it again. If you're old enough to have worn it once, you cannot wear it again because a lot of people will think that you just never moved on. <laughs> um, so, yes, what's kind of, I mean, I remember wearing granny shoes and my own grandmother thinking that was very peculiar. And of course, they looked rather cute on a 17 year old girl. But if you wear them when you're older, um, no, wouldn't do at all. Um, well, I see the same thing in architecture, actually, because lots of, especially in, in London, lots of 80s hipsters are wearing new, sort of hipsters are wearing 80s or neo 80s stuff. But also in architecture schools, a lot of the student work is postmodernist, sort of 80s pastel colours, yeah. uh, round arches, um, circles, this kind of thing, all, all the sort of a new interpretation of postmodernism. Yeah. Um, and, and, and to some extent high-tech as well, like 90s high-tech. And I, I don't know whether that's part of the same phenomena or whether that's... I think it is. I mean, I think it is to do with the speed with which things come round, the chronological difference that is necessary, as Beaton says, to lend enchantment to the eye, so that things go from being just a bit out of date to passe to, to ooh, that's interesting. And they never come back quite the same. Um, but that there is, I mean, there are fashion and architecture also, um, fashion designers like architects are constantly stealing and copying because there are in the end, you know, people, most people anyway, just have two arms and two legs and a head and a house is a house, an office is an office, there are, a church is a church. So there are, there is a limit to the permutations and what you can do is revisit and it's not a total steal, a total reproduction, but um, yeah, the recycling. And as I say, I think what's interesting is what when things come back, how they come back, and the time period of time over which they come back. People are often very fascinated by what they can just remember, their sort of earliest memories, if they're visually inclined, as children. Um, that kind of goes very deep. And then they grow up, of course, and they go beyond it. And then it, the going back, the retro look, tends to be to when they were themselves three, four, five. Mm. Possibly, although I'd say it's, well, I was born in 89, and I'd say it's the generation slightly below me, which was yeah. 95 onwards. Like yeah. Gen Xers who are the ones who are adopting like, new 80s fashion. I can't imagine any of my contemporaries adopting that. No. It's not quite far enough away. It's not quite far enough away now. I see what you mean. Yes. Mm. But is there, is there a difference between the movements that are just 
recycling movements from X numbers of decades ago, and when something completely new comes along, like in, also in like an architectural context or in terms of patterns of that, like is there like at what point do you stop recycling what happened forty years ago, and something completely brand new comes along, whether fashion or clothes or architecture? Like what are the catalysts for that, that happens there? Well, they tend, in, in terms of clothes, it tends to be um, great social change. I mean, men's clothes stopped being interesting when um, more men worked in offices um, than suits came in. Until then, really, everyone... Um, and indeed, when people started to commute, because until then, really... You either worked, um, Baldrick style, on the land, um, or you lived, um, if you had a shop or if you had an office, you lived um, near your office, over your office. Once you got to the point, certainly in London, where there were bridges over the river, um, and then there were railways, and then there were suburbs, and you begin to get commuting, really begins quite early in the 19th century. And that's the point at which men's clothes become much more uniform much more um, uh, hard-wearing, if you like, even for a middle-class clerk in an office. Um, you know, his, his clothes have got to be stand up to the rough and tumble of getting to work and getting home again. Um, so I think big social changes and then big technical changes. You invent Lycra, suddenly you've got athleisure wear. Um, it'd be interesting to see whether the pandemic... And there's all this stuff about no one's ever going to get dressed properly below the waist ever, ever again. Um, that's not true. Except one or two days a week when they have to go to the office. Yes, quite. I mean, no, that won't happen. Um, but I think people probably... I think I, I felt certainly putting away my summer clothes this year, having not really had that sort of a summer, I felt very sad for them. And I hope that they'll come out again and... Um, come out into better times because we also do against another parallel with architecture i think not everyone but a lot of people and a lot of women become very emotionally attached to clothes and also to their significance and every bride i've ever known who all they all say i said it um well i want a dress that i'll wear again you know i don't want it just they never ever do because that dress well some do but on the whole that dress is about that moment and that thing and it's preserved as a kind of relic. Well, there's a there's fashion for trashing the dress in some circumstances now, isn't there? Or they sort of ceremonially burn it or, or, or trash it in one way or another, which is, like you say, it's almost like this is this was the memory, this, is, this thing has served its function, yeah. it will not be worn again. Let's sort of ceremonially, ceremonially let it go. Yes, exactly. There is the idea that there's no... Um, Ritual significance to clothes today is really, I mean, the best, one of the, two of the best um, fictional descriptions of that come in Muriel Sparks, The Girl of Girls of Slender Means, where there is an amazing dress, a designer dress that all these girls share, but the dress itself, it's a Scaparelli dress, um, becomes like their sort of, their soul. And it's a most, being Muriel Spark, it's very funny. It's also extremely sinister book about, um, about evil. Um, but the dress is central to it. And then in um, Sylvia Plath's novel, The Bell Jar, when she's having this nervous breakdown, she's been given what 
looks like and she thinks is the great chance of a lifetime um the chance to work on this fashion magazine in New York and she gets she's won a competition and she gets the job and she gets um a wardrobe of brand new fabulous clothes and it all goes horribly wrong but there's a wonderful scene where she throws the clothes out of the window and watches them floating away into the New York night sky and it is part of herself that's going with them and I think it is a range not only of dress but for writers particularly for women writers who understand it it gives them a whole range of well it is metaphorical writing but it is also these are real dresses real clothes um, but they are also metaphorical um, they can become metaphorical tropes and I think that's just true in life mm. there's been some reaction to fast fashion um, recently do you think that will progress more and people will start paying more attention to their clothes or is it sort of inevitable that we're gonna we've sort of passed the point of no return in terms of cheap clothing now uh, well I think um, I feel quite impatient sometimes with people particularly at the moment who are very rightly exercised about the evils of empire and um, the iniquity of the slave trade who were sitting there wearing, do you know where that thing was made? Do you know who was working in a sweatshop in Bangladesh or in Leicester? And the fact is that fast fashion clothes are not that cheap. They're just not that cheap. So if you're not paying, someone else is paying um, somehow and possibly with their life or their health. So I think that we've got to stop that. It's very bad for the environment, the climate, but it is also very, very bad for people, many of them women, most of them still women, who work in sweatshops um, in terrible conditions. So no, I think, it, no, that's just got to stop, like single-use plastic. Um, it's got to stop. We can't have it. And if that means that everyone has fewer clothes, well, we'll have fewer clothes. Yeah, well, there's also something nice about having key pieces that you keep for long periods of time as well and get them renewed fairly frequently. I mean, last year I got one of my overcoats, um, got the real the lining redone because it was torn to pieces. And now it's got sort of a new life and that will last another 20, 30 years or however long. Absolutely. Again. And it's, yeah, I think that, that sort of care, it almost goes back to the craft thing, doesn't it? The, yeah. sort of the care of paying attention to an object and actually making sure it's well constructed and then repairing it when it isn't sort of usable anymore mm. and then reusing it. That's almost a completely different attitude to the sort of throwaway attitudes, which maybe you can get throwaway attitude in buildings as well. I mean, you get yeah. the, the sort of these panelling systems and things which won't last more than 10 years. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's uh, it's sort of a cross-design, cross-cultural phenomenon, which I think... Yes, I think, well, I mean, we've got over... I mean, one mustn't be too hard on people, including oneself, but, you know, it, it was very exciting that you could suddenly make things very fast, there were fast ways of producing stuff, and it really began, I think, in the 60s and the 70s, where there was a place like Bus Stop, and you could buy paper dresses, and you could, you bought your dress on Saturday morning, you wore it on Saturday night, you threw it out on Sunday, and this was, you know, huge, and a lot of the women who were doing that, either they or their mothers, had grown up with a lot of home dressmaking, and, you know, the, the ready-to-wear ranges were, you know, it was all very, very exciting, but... 
it comes at a cost. And certainly I like clothes that I've had for a long time because they're associated with certain times and places. And I can often remember what I was wearing when something momentous, either good or bad, happened. And certain clothes become friends and you wear if you're if you're me and you're giving a lecture and you're a bit apprehensive about it you know you wear your your lucky shoes or you you wear your favorite cardigan because it's a friend um so yes i think you could have all sorts of relationships with clothes but what we cannot have um both i mean the pollution of it's the other problem with fashion fashion has to change fashion only exists as change and um it can't, that cannot go on in the same way. I mean, I think you can have a little tiny bit of high, very high end fashion, um, perhaps to keep people amused. But as people did in earlier generations, um, and all the way back to the Victorians and before that to Jane Austen, you know, you retrim your bonnet or you take your skirt up or you let your skirt down, um, but you don't just buy, you know, a whole new wardrobe twice a year. Yeah, I think it's it's that that paying paying attention to what what it is that you've got in your wardrobe. I think is more of a a value that needs to come back, and I think maybe is coming back to some extent. Well, of course, it's, the throwaway thing is very Anglo-Saxon. I mean, the French pay more for their clothes, but then French women will do that thing of having um, Agnes B, who's I think a great designer for the kind of middle-range woman, but she has a collection of. Unfortunately, they used to be called Les Permanents, and now she's changed it to Les Forever, which is silly. The French have got a very good language of their own. But, you know, the idea that they're quite expensive, and you buy her black trousers, you buy the good serviceable handbag, these pieces are expensive, but she's expecting you to have them for 20 years. And then you can, yes, you can jazz it up with a T-shirt that's a bit this one-season wonder. Um, But the French have always been better at that just as they pay more for their food and don't get so fat. Interesting. (laughs) Well, maybe if people didn't get so fat, they wouldn't have to change their clothes off. Well, that's another point. (laughs) Well, on that note, (laughs) call it it a day. Uh, I can highly recommend your book. Thank you. God's Architect, one of the best biographies I've ever read. Um, And yeah, well worth reading, very well researched. And your other books are Stonehenge? Stonehenge. Unicorn, which is a collection of the poems of Angela Carter, and the one which will be coming out next year, which is called Time's Witness. What's that about? It's about the romantics and the reinvention of history, and it's got quite a lot of architecture in it. Oh, I look forward to reading that one. Rosemary Hill, thank you very much. Thank you.